Let's go ahead and pray. God, we, uh, as we're thinking about it, we do pray for Pam, that you just bless her. And uh, just, uh, we recognize that our physical body's passing away, but we do pray uh, that you would just sustain her and, and uh, just restore her eyesight. God, just, uh, we thank you for the gift of vision, and we pray that you would uh, just give her calmness right now, give her peace to recognize that you are in control. We do pray for wisdom for the doctors on a practical level. We pray for appointments to be scheduled quickly, um, that you just work your way with all of that. Um, but Lord, as we're turning now, we do pray also that you would bless your word, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to, um, to not just hear, but to receive, to understand. We pray that your word would go deep in our hearts and have an impact in our lives. And so please just have your way with us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, tonight finds us in the book of Joshua. And, um, you know, going through book a week. So tonight is Joshua. And next Wednesday night is going to be Judges, which is super exciting. Um, Joshua is really an interesting book. It's sort of a contrast. Uh, we get to see Joshua as a contrast with Deuteronomy, which we covered last week, and it also ends up being a contrast with Judges. Um, it's a contrast with Deuteronomy and Numbers, really, because it, you know those we've talked about a little bit. They're kind of the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, and uh, Joshua is all about them coming into the land, uh, coming into the promised land, taking the land. Judges is all about after they've been in the land, what they do wrong. But the book of Joshua really is, um, it's just one of the most uh, profound books of the Bible because it's just loaded with uh, super practical uh, examples, super practical just points of, hey, here's how somebody did this. And, and here's a, just a very straightforward takeaway. Um, so, you know, for the historical context, book of Joshua takes place after Moses has died. Uh, Israelites had wandered around the wilderness for 40 years before going into the promised land, Joshua um, opens up right as the Lord says, okay, it's time to go. It's time to move out. And it's, it's an exciting book because it's really the greatest point of spiritual victory in Israel's history. And there's really no other point, uh, even during the time of David and Solomon, even during the time of Josiah and Hezekiah, there's always these, like, these undercurrents of, hey, this is great, but there's you know, there's something going on. The water's not clear. And Joshua is just this, you know, it's, it's that moment when the person you've been rooting for is on a roll. Or if, if you're a sports person, you know, the sports team, they've been losing for years and now they're, they're really winning and this is their year. And that's kind of where Joshua is uh, for the nation of Israel. And so it's just a really exciting book. It's an encouraging book because we're going to watch Israel walk in victory. And, um, and there's a lot of ways to glean insights from the book of Joshua. You know, you, you can, if you want to, you can almost read the entire book as a type of an allegory and for what is it like to live the Christian life. But we don't want to just do that because it is a historical narrative, all right? The book of Joshua uh, is literal history, and so we want to look at it and say, okay, this is literal history. This is God telling us, here's what happened, all right? And so we don't want to just turn it into an allegory, and not that that's inherently bad in and of itself, but we want to say, okay, what are the principles we can learn from Joshua, right? There's ideas, and there are types, and there's pictures, and those are important, and they're good, and they're beneficial for us, but we also want to just look and say, okay, what are the, what are some basic principles from the book of Joshua that we can take away, all right? And um, so as we're looking at the book of Joshua, Joshua is really a book about victory. 
It's a book about walking in victory. And we do see, um, you know, it's, as Christians, we want to have victory. We want to, you know, we want to be that person who's sort of on a victorious roll, right? Nobody wants to be a perpetual loser, right? We want to have victory. We want to, you know, be conquering. We want to achieve things and not get to the end of our lives and feel like I was always in the back row uh, in terms of getting things done. I was always, you know, the, the person who just had a lot of great potential and never utilized any of it, right? The book of Joshua, uh, in that sense, can become a, a bit of a guidebook for, hey, if you want to have victory with the Lord, here's how you do it. And so, as we're looking at Israel going into the promised land, uh, you know, we're always trying to balance, and we'll be doing it a lot tonight, that historical side and that just straight-up application side. So, crossing into the promised land, the promised land um, is a picture for us of a victorious Christian life. And, and you, you kind of have to stop there because a lot of, throughout history, a lot of the church has taken the promised land to be symbolic of heaven, right? It's like, oh, when I get to the promised land and, you know, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye and, and we've put it in songs, we've put it in books and, and really it's not a great picture of heaven because once they cross into the promised land, they're still going to make mistakes and they're still going to have wars to fight and they're still going to occasionally get defeated. Um, and so they're still in this process of hearing from the Lord and walking in obedience and, you know, correcting course when they make mistakes. And so in that sense, that's not what heaven's going to be like, okay? In heaven, we will be in our glorified bodies. We'll be in a, in a place of perfect unity with the Lord. And so the promised land is a picture for us of the promised land that we can have. It's, it's the promised life that we can have in Christ, all right? So, so that's what we're looking at. And so the book of Joshua divides pretty neatly into roughly three sections if you're trying to break the book up in your mind. So the first section is going to be all about them entering the land. The second section is going to be all about them conquering the land. And the third section is all about them dividing the land. And, um, you know, it might be important to, to kind of stop and step back and say, why are they going into the land in the first place? Because as you read through the Old Testament, you could look at this and say, wow, God's being a little harsh on the Canaanites here right? I mean, they're just, they're doing life, and the Israelites come in out of the blue and, and start committing genocide. And, and you can look at that and say, wow, God is this totalitarian dictator, harsh, oppressive guy. And to understand that, um, the Lord actually explains that. The Lord anticipates that, and so he writes it for us. And he tells the Israelites, you're not going to go into the land and conquer it because you're so awesome. Uh, he said, let's get this very clear. You are not taking the land because of your righteousness, because your righteousness is awful, right? And, then even, and, and even in that, right, we see that if we have any victory in our life, it's not because we're awesome, uh, because we're not. It's because of something else. It's because of the goodness of God, right? But the Lord says, the reason you're going into the land is because of the wickedness of the nations who are already there. Um, when, when the Lord made the promise to Abraham, this is back about 400 years prior, the Lord tells Abraham, your children, your descendants are going to be oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years before they get to go into the promised land. Because the, um, well, I should have marked it, and you would think that I would have, but I completely forgot to mark it. Um, <clears throat> so give me just a half a second. The Lord tells them they'll be oppressed for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord says there's a people group in the promised land who have not yet maxed out their sinful potential. And I'm giving them a chance for grace, okay? I'm going to give them 400 years. And if you read this straight up, then most likely 
every other Canaanite group had already hit their full potential, right? They had hit that point where every person who was going to repent had repented or whatever. And the Lord knew these guys, you know, all these other tribes absolutely have to go. The Amorites aren't quite there yet. And I'm going to give 400 years for them. So, you know, so don't look at as Israel coming into the promised land as this overarching genocide. Look at it as it's the grace of God. Right? He extended an extra four centuries to these people. But in his sovereignty, he knows there's this point where, hey, you know what? They've, they have sold themselves so far into sin that they are not going to be drawn out. And even in that, as we look at that, we see pictures throughout. Uh, there are occasionally individuals who do come out of that, right? Rahab being the most prominent one in the book of Joshua. Uh, she's a prostitute in the city of Jericho who decides to put her faith in the Lord. And so the Lord takes her out of the Canaanite land, uh, out of the Canaanite system, and she becomes part of the nation of Israel. She winds up being in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So that's the, you know, the overall picture is Israel's getting ready to enter the land because God has promised them. So the f- part one is all about entering the land. It's really all about preparing for victory. And I love the way it opens up. It says, now it came about, chapter one, verse one, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. You gotta love the way the Lord just never beats around the bush, right? Joshua finds himself the leader of two million people. He's in charge of, you know, telling people, here's where the Lord said to go. Here's what the Lord said to do. And the Lord comes to Joshua and says, hey, I want you to remember something. Moses is dead. Right? Because, and that's important because Joshua cannot operate according to Moses' system because it's going to be a completely different system. Moses led the people through 40 years of wandering. God does not want Joshua to lead the people through wandering. God wants Joshua to lead the people in victory. So God says, we're not doing this Moses' way. We're not doing this, you know, I mean, Moses was serving the Lord in his way in his time, but God says, I'm doing something with you right now. And you need to not get stuck in, well, Moses always did it this way because Moses is dead. So Moses is dead. And then God tells Joshua three times in the first paragraph. He says, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land. Only be strong and very courageous. And then verse nine, be strong and courageous. So it would appear that Joshua needed to be reminded to be strong and courageous. And, you know, some people take this uh, to interpret Joshua as some sort of, you know, wussy leader. Um, but I think if anybody suddenly finds themselves leader of two million people and your job is to go in and conquer thousands of square miles of territory, you'd probably be a little bit, you know, apprehensive. There'd be a little bit like, I could use some encouragement. So the Lord tells him, hey, you be strong, you be courageous. My word shouldn't depart from you. You stay focused, you stay on mission. We're getting ready to go into victory. All right, so, if we, so as we're looking at this and saying, what are the principles What are things that the Lord finds important in preparing for victory? Well, evidently, the Lord finds being strong and courageous an important step in preparing for victory. So he wants them to be strong and courageous. The next thing they have to do is they actually have to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the barrier between where they were at and the Promised Land. They had to cross the river, and it's a lot like the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, It's a little different, but the Lord rolls the water back, and the people cross on dry land. So how do they get into the land? They go into the land. And that, you know, it sounds obvious, but so often we're 
trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I achieve victory? How do you, you know, how do you get this done? How do you, how do you walk in victory? Well, oftentimes the most effective way to walk in victory is to walk in victory, right? And, and there's this, you know, sometimes we want the Lord to drop the answer in our lap. And sometimes the Lord says, hey, why don't you walk across the river? As soon as you set foot in the water, the water rolls back and you walk through on dry land, but you had to put your foot in the water. So the Lord tells them to be strong and courageous. The Lord tells them to cross the Jordan River. Now they are in the promised land. Okay, now they, are, they, you know, they had a little bit of a protective border by virtue of the river. So there's all these enemies on the other side that they're getting ready to go in and conquer. The Lord says, all right, go across. I want you to conquer the land. All right, so they all cross. The Lord says, all right, now I want you to take up 12 stones. You're gonna build a monument to remind you of what I did here. Because, and that's an important step. We talked about this last week. You know, we always look back to the faithfulness of God, but we always look back for the sake of looking forward. We always look back to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God in the past so we can be reminded of the faithfulness of God right now. So the Lord says, I want you to have a memorial to remember this is what the Lord did. And then he says something really interesting. He says, I want you to circumcise every man in the entire nation. Now, without getting too awkward, circumcision is uh, not a great thing to do right before you go to battle. And if you're going to do it, it would have been much more practical to do it on the other side of the Jordan. Because basically, they now cross the Jordan and they weaken themselves. They incapacitate themselves for several days, right? Now they're vulnerable. And circumcision is, again, one of those pictures that very consistently throughout Scripture is a type of cutting away the flesh, cutting away the sin in our lives, cutting away, you know, all the things that are holding us back. And again, without getting too awkward, it's pretty private, right? So they got to, they have to deal with the private issues in their lives. And so if we want to walk in victory, right? When the Lord tells us to cross the Jordan, we cross the Jordan. When the Lord says, you get rid of the sin in your life, we got to get rid of the sin in our lives. And, um, you know, and, and again, you know, whenever you talk about sin, there's always the Lord's grace, and there's always, there's a difference between stumbling in sin and choosing to walk in sin, but we have to be willing to cut away the sin in our lives if we're preparing for victory. If we want to say, I'm ready to walk in victory with the Lord, you can't walk in 95% victory. And we'll actually, as we go on, we'll see that illustrated even better. Um, so that's part one. That's all about preparing for victory. Part two is conquering the land. It's walking in victory. So chapter six is really the first part of that. It's really gonna run from chapter six through chapter 14. Um, chapter six is the story of the fall of Jericho. And it's, it's probably the most famous story in the book of Joshua where the Lord tells Joshua, Jericho's the first city you're gonna conquer. I want you to take all of the Israelites. You march around the city once and go home. And we're gonna do it six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times, and then you're going to all shout, and the walls will fall down. And we read it, you know, we're, we're American Christians. We read it. If you grew up in the church, you've heard it since you were a very young person. It's a story that we know really well, but do you ever stop to think about how stupid it is as a, as a military plan, right? What a great idea. We'll just shout, and rocks will come apart. I mean, it, it really isn't, it's uh, militarily speaking, it's not a bad plan. It's not a plan, right? Yelling at walls is not how you knock them over. And people have tried to, you know, a lot of liberal scholars, as they try and rationalize the Bible, it's, well, maybe they hit the perfect, 
you know, sound frequency, kind of like when you can, when the opera singer can break glass, you know, you get enough people yelling all at once and the walls all exploded. But it's not really, uh, I don't I think that's a very viable theory. I think uh, what we're looking at is a, just a killer principle, which is that if you want to walk in victory, you obey what the Lord says. And, and we see this, this is all throughout the scriptures. The Lord, when the Lord wants to do something amazing, he often begins it by asking people to do something foolish. Something that if it fails, you are going to look like an idiot. Okay, the Lord at the, at the wedding in Cana, they run out of wine. The Lord tells the servants, here's what you do. You fill the pots up with water. And then you take some of that water to the master of ceremonies. But we're out of wine, right? We don't need water, we need wine. Yeah, I know. So you're gonna, you're gonna do is you're gonna fill these pots with water and take the water to the master of ceremonies. Uh, Elisha was out cutting wood with a bunch of guys. And one of them, uh, the ax head flew off the handle and it fell in the rock. It fell on, sorry, fell in the creek and sank. And the guy says, man, that was a borrowed ax head. I can't afford to replace it. Elisha said, where did it go? And he says, it fell right about there. Elisha takes a stick and chucks it in the water because that's what the Lord told him to do. And the ax head floats up, right? They're not, the Lord doesn't ask us to do things because they're rational. The Lord asks us to do things because he's God and we're not. He asks us to do things because he wants to demonstrate who he is. He has really no interest in impressing the world with who we are, right? The Lord is not really interested in geniuses for Christ. Um, the Lord, he really has no interest. That's just, that's just really not on his radar. The Lord loves using people who are uh, not exactly the cream of the crop. Right? I mean, you know, Peter, every time we see Peter in the New Testament fishing, he isn't catching anything. He's a professional fisherman, but every time we see him fishing in the scriptures, he's empty. He's, he, he's what did you catch? Nothing. Like, zero. So, the Lord gives them a plan. It makes no sense, but it brings them victory. Because obedience to the Lord's plan, even if it makes no sense, brings victory. And that's sometimes, that's really hard to swallow. Right? But we see this illustrated just beautifully throughout the book of Joshua. Jericho being sort of the most prominent uh, feature of that. The next thing that happens is we see this uh, kind of, it, it's a tragedy, but it's a, it's a great warning for us. Where the Lord told them, all right, when you go in and you conquer Jericho, I get the first spoils. All right? The city of Jericho, all the treasure in it belongs to me. You dedicate it all to the Lord. And so they did. They dedicated all of it to the Lord except for one guy named Achan who saw uh, a Babylonian piece of clothing and a brick of silver and just thought, man, that looks good. You know, Canaanite fashion is so hot. I've just got to have this. So he took it home, put it in his tent, buried it. Nobody knew about it. And the Israelites go to their next battle and they lose. And, and you think about all that momentum, right? We just did something crazy and it worked. We crossed the Jordan River and it rolled up. We are in the land. We are on a roll. We are going to the city of Ai. We're going to conquer it and they just beat us, right? You slam into that brick wall. And, and we see Joshua sort of get all destitute and God, what are we going to do? They're all going to kill us and we're dead. And, and the Lord, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Get up. You've got a job to do, Joshua. He said, Joshua, I did not bring you this far to let you die. I brought you this far so you could walk in victory. So guess what, Joshua? There's sin in the camp. 
Joshua, somebody disobeyed me and it's impacting everybody else around him. And so you need to deal with the sin. So it's a reiteration of the whole principle of circumcising, circumcision. He says, you have sin in the camp and it needs to be dealt with. You will not have victory and sin side by side. You're gonna have one or the other. And so Israel has to deal with their sin in order to walk in victory. So they wind up having to execute Achan and after that, they're able to properly conquer the city of Ai. Um, so, but it's a principle we see, right? Joshua is all about, if you're gonna walk in victory, you've got to be walking in victory. You don't walk in victory and then walk in sin and then walk in victory and walk in sin. That's what the book of Judges is all about, the people trying to do, and it's a failure. All right, we'll get there next week. But Judges is all about people trying to walk in victory a little bit and sort of casually slide in a little bit of what they wanna do, and it's a story of defeat over and over and over again. If we wanna walk in victory, we have to be willing to put aside sin. Um, and then as we're going on, in chapter nine, we see Israel, uh, really Joshua and the leadership, make another mistake. They, get, uh, they got a little bit cocky at the city of Ai. That's part of why they got conquered or beaten the, at that point. But um, there's another group of people, the Gibeonites, who decide, you know what? Israel's commanded by the Lord to, to make no treaties and leave no survivors, so we've gotta come up with something. So they dress up like they're old and tired and worn out, and they go to Israel and say, hey, we're from like way far away. Would you please make a treaty with us? Because we know that you're not supposed to make a treaty, but we're so way far away that we're really not a threat. And we, got, you know, we can prove it. Here's our old sandals. Here's our old clothes. Here's our old bread. Here's our old wineskins. And Joshua and the leaders look at all the evidence and say, yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're pretty far away, obviously. We'll make a treaty with you. We will never wipe you out. And then about a week later, they realize these guys live three days away from us. Three days march, which is not that far geographically. And they go to the Gibeonites and say, hey, you lied to us. The Gibeonites say, yeah, sorry, too bad, so sad. You made a promise, Right? And, and interestingly, the Lord does not let the Israelites go back on their word. The Lord takes, his, takes, takes integrity very seriously. Um, so the Israelites, so there's a principle here, first off, that if you're not sure, ask the Lord, right? And kind of in keeping with that idea about Jericho, Joshua and the guys, they look at the evidence. It makes a lot of sense to them to say, you know what? Sure, these guys are from really far away. But they don't, it says, um, they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And if you want to walk in victory, asking for the counsel of the Lord is a beautiful place to start, right? Hey God, what do you think about this decision? What do you think? Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any opinions? Asking for the counsel of the Lord, seeking for the counsel of the Lord in the word, in the, in the fellowship of other believers, in the prompting of the Holy Spirit, right? The Lord is happy to, the Lord gives us a promise, an absolute promise that the person who asks for wisdom will get wisdom. So if you're not sure what the proper step is, ask for wisdom. If you're positive what the proper step is, ask for wisdom anyways, right? And so we see this principle, but even later on, hundreds of years later in Israel's history, there's gonna be a famine and the people will go to the Lord and say, what's with the famine? And the Lord say, it's gonna be, it's because your last king tried to kill the Gibeonites. And the Lord takes their oath seriously for centuries, all right? So it's, your words have consequences. And just because we live in a culture that says, oh, I didn't mean it, um, that's not how the Lord sees it. So integrity is a big deal. Um, but, and then from there, as they're conquering the land, we see just 
we really do see a lot of victory. Joshua winds up conquering 31 kings in the nation of Israel. Uh, and that's, it's a percentage of all the land they're supposed to conquer, but Joshua is a man on a roll. The Israelites are conquering, they're spreading out, and they're doing exactly what the Lord told them to do. And it's interesting because Joshua, you know, sometimes we try and, we're always trying to balance out. Like if you want to be, if you want to be fruitful and you want to be faithful and you want to be victorious in, in the Christian life, there's always this balance that you wind up coming against. And that is, okay, how much am I responsible for and how much do I need to just trust the Lord, right? How much is, uh, is my responsibility? How much is God's sovereignty or God's provision? And Joshua's a beautiful picture of how that balance works, I think, in that the Lord gave them victory everywhere they walked. Um, the Lord completely gave them the victory everywhere they went to war. Right? So who, who did it? Well, they were responsible for it, and God was sovereign over it. So sometimes we, you know, we want to figure this out like we've got to understand the line. No, no, that's not the point. The point is if you want to walk in victory, walk in victory and let God bring the victory. You walk and God brings it. Right? That's how it's supposed to be established. I don't think we're supposed to really perfectly understand, well, is this, am I responsible for this or is God sovereign over this? No, no, no. You do it responsibly and let God sovereignly guide you in how responsible you should be. So Joshua conquers the land. He's conquering the land. And that takes us up to part three, which is chapters 15 through 24, which is where they divide the land. So there's 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. There's actually, um, technically there's 13 because the tribe of Joseph is split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, but as they count it out, they still would always call it the 12 tribes because you had really the two tribes from Joseph, but the tribe of Levi, because they became the priest, didn't get a territorial, yeah, that's the word, territorial inheritance, okay? So you still had 12 tribes dividing up the land. So what happens is Joshua says, okay, guys, we've conquered a pretty good chunk. There's still a lot to go. I'm getting a little bit old. We're gonna divide this up and I'm gonna make sure everybody knows Here's where your chunk is, because I won't live forever. I'm 85 years old. It's just kind of a practical reality that we need to have a little bit of plan in place. So they divide the land. They sort it out by lot. They go, you know, they measure it off, sort of survey it out, and then cast lots for it to decide, okay, who goes where, which territory belongs to which person. And, um, and really, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit tedious reading, frankly, uh, in that chunk of the book of Joshua. But it is important in the sense that the Lord is establishing, hey, this is where my people belong. This is the land that I am giving my people. And so we see Joshua divide up the land. And then uh, from there, we see just a couple other things as, as we're wrapping up. And um, one is, well, Actually, I'm going I'm to just back up because I completely skipped a little thought in my notes. And you guys will all forgive me, I hope. Um, so when they're conquering the land, there's one last thought, which is uh, the example of Caleb. And it's just really a great picture to sort of wrap up the idea of conquering the land. Um, if you remember, when the Israelites were first going to go into the land, when Moses was going to lead them, Moses sent the 12 spies in. They came back. Ten of them said, there's no way we can conquer it. Two of them said, the Lord's on our side, right? We can walk in this victoriously. Those two were Joshua and Caleb. 
And when all the other Israelites said, there's absolutely no way we can do this, we refuse to obey the word of the Lord, God said, okay, fine, none of you are gonna go into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb had to wander in the desert for 40 years just like everybody else, but they had a promise from God that they were gonna make it into the promised land, right? So they're both in their 80s at this point. The Lord has sustained them physically to where they can still go into the land, but um, Joshua's wrapping up the land, he's, he's parceling it out, and Caleb comes up to Joshua, and he says, hey, I've got a request. You remember that one city when we were all spying out the land where the Anakim were? And the Anakim were a group of giants. So he says, hey, that was kind of the specific city that really freaked out all the spies. That was the idea that there were giants in the land is really what made them bring back the bad report. Can I have that city? I'd like it. I'd, I'd like to go take it, if that's okay. And Joshua said, he says, you know, I'm, I'm only 85, right? Can I have that city? And, uh, you know, I think the Lord just might give it to me. I'm gonna walk responsibly and see what the Lord does in his sovereignty. So can I have, can I have that city? And Joshua says, sure, right? So Caleb says, all right, I'm going. Who's coming with me? Uh, first guy to join up can marry my daughter if he wants, right? So, um, it's like, everybody's like, great plan, let's go. Um, so Caleb goes. Caleb takes the city. As an 85-year-old dude, Caleb marches uphill to this city and takes it, right? And, so when we're, and, so, and I just love that picture of that idea of walking in victory, right? When, does, when do you stop walking in victory? When you're 86, right? Caleb's 85 years old. He says, I think God still wants to do something. And I have, I'm not positive what it is. He doesn't say, you know, I'm not claiming it in faith. He just says, you know, it might be that when the Lord said he'd give us this land, that he meant that he'd be okay giving me this city. And I just would like to see what the Lord wants to do. So I'm gonna just walk in obedience. I'm gonna walk, try and walk in victory. I'm gonna go for it, right? Serving the Lord has no age cap. There is no point at which you tap out of the Lord's army, right? Caleb's 85 and he's still going strong. So anyways, now that I got that thought, we can go back to part three, uh, where he's dividing up the land. Um, so they divide up the land, and then we see um, chapter 22, we see this interesting thing. And if, if you remember from two weeks ago, we were in the book of Numbers, and three of the tribes came up to Moses and they said, hey, well, two and a half of the tribes, came up to Moses and said, hey, I know we're not in the promised land yet, but this land here is pretty awesome, so if it's okay with you, we'd rather just stay here, right? We'd rather not go into the promised land. And, um, and we talked about it a little bit then, so we're not gonna go too far into that idea, but Moses lets them. The Lord's, you know, the Lord and Moses and Joshua here say, if you guys don't wanna go into the promised land, you don't have to go into the promised land. Nobody's forcing you to go into the promised land. But, um, but you do have a responsibility to your other Israeli brethren. You need to go in and fight with them for their territory, and then you can come back. They say, okay, great, thank you. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, and there's a, we don't have time. There's a ton of application there in terms of you can walk right up to the edge of victory and stop, right? You can choose, ah, I'm not going to serve the Lord anymore. And the Lord will let you stop, but you will sell yourself short. But anyways, so these tribes who came over, to fight with the Israelites are now going back home. And they go back home, they cross back over the Jordan and they build an altar. 
And the other Israelites hear about it and they panic and they're ready to go to war because they think, you know, these two and a half tribes, they're branching off already. They're starting their own pagan religion. We've got to deal with this right now. We're not going to let any sin in the camp. We learned our lesson last time. So they all go, get ready to go to war with the two and a half tribes. And the two and a half tribes say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You completely misunderstood. We're not going to sacrifice anything on the altar. The altar is just a memorial. It's a symbol for us because we thought... Down the road, your descendants might think that our descendants aren't really part of Israel. They might try and uh, distance themselves from us. So we need a symbol, a sort of an anchor point, uh, to remind us and you guys that we're still part of Israel. And the Israelites say, oh, okay, that makes so much sense. Sure, great, love you guys too, see you, you know, mail you a Christmas card, all that stuff. Um, but... But there's an interesting idea there that I think is really important as, as we're looking at a group of people who decided not to go in the promised land. And that is that they didn't have the real altar. They weren't at the tabernacle. They had to build themselves a symbol. And a lot of times, um, you know, as we're looking at principles from the book of Joshua, if we choose, hey, I don't want to walk in victory. I really, you know, I'm okay just sort of wandering. I'm okay staying out of the fullness of what God has for me. The Lord will let us have that. But we will wind up substituting the real thing for symbols, right? We can still have a very Christian look. We can have bumper stickers. We can have cheesy slogans. We can have Bible verses on our walls. But they're just symbols. They're not the real thing, right? You can have your, well, anyways, yeah, I'll stop. But... If we choose to stop short of what the Lord is offering us, we can still look super Christian. We can, you know, we can still be saved even. These guys are still Israelites, but they are selling themselves short. They are setting themselves up for failure. They're feeling the need to replace their real relationship with the Lord that they can have with a symbol to make sure that everybody knows, no, I'm still really a Christian. I'm still really an Israelite. Right? I'm, I'm for real. I'm in the family. And if you have to prove that you're still an Israelite, then the question is, well, why do you have to prove it, right? If we have to make sure that we're proving that we're a Christian, that you've got to know that I'm serious about the Lord. Well, you shouldn't have to convince me because it should be so evident by all the things you naturally say and do, right? And then lastly, um, as Joshua's Wrapping up, he says, you know, guys, I'm 85. It's time for sort of the farewell speech. He reviews Israel's history. Um, and it just, he wraps up with what uh, is one of, the, one of the more famous verses in the Bible. But in chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether it's the God whom, gods whom your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. living. He says, guys, look, here's the deal. If you don't want to serve the Lord, you make that choice right now. If you want to serve, you know, if you want to serve the passions and the gods and the sins that you worshiped back in Egypt, you make that choice right now. If you want to serve the sins and the passions and the gods of all the people who are surrounding you right now and the culture that you're living in now, you make that choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua, here's the deal. You guys are going to have to choose. Right? You don't get to passively become a victorious Christian. It doesn't happen. You can, you can kind of follow along. You can hang on somebody else's coattails. You can look like you're a victorious Christian. 
but you're not going to accidentally be victorious, right? The Lord didn't, the Lord told the Israelites specifically, he said, I am not going to just have some sort of mass epidemic and wipe out all the Canaanites. I'm not going to let you walk into an empty land. Because if you do that, you'll have a wild animal problem. And I don't want you guys to have to deal with that. And among other things. But the Lord says, no, you're going to drive them out piece by piece. And you make sure you drive them out all the way. The Israelites didn't get to just walk in and absorb a victorious land. They had to fight for it. Right? And the Lord used that to teach them, to grow them, to disciple them. We don't, as we're looking at principles from the book of Joshua, we don't get to just stumble into victory. Right? And the blend of our responsibility and God's sovereignty, you're going to have as much victory as you want to have. Um, A.W. Tozer was a pastor back in the day. He said, every person has as much of God in their lives as they want. No more and no less. You will have as much victory as you want. You know, you, the point at which you say, I'm done advancing, that's the point at which you're done advancing. The point at which you say, you know, I'm good leaving this sin of my life. That's the point at which you stop advancing. The point at which, the point at which we say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really not in the mood to deal with my pride. I'm not in the mood to deal with my lust or my arrogance or my selfishness. That's the point at which the victory stops, right? And, and again, you know, as we say this, it's not to turn this into this idea of works and your victory is entirely based upon, you know, can you save yourself? No, no, no. Because you have to remember the book of Joshua is all about the Lord grants the victory as the people walk in victory. And it's the two of them hand in hand. The two of them together are how we walk in victory. That is the victorious Christian life. That is life worth living. When we walk in the victory that the Lord offers, right? We're not absorbing it. We're not falling into it. We're walking in it, right? We're marching into it. One step at a time, one city at a time, we're marching into victory. And that's really, you know, as the book of Joshua, it is a history, but it's also very much that idea. And so in that sense also, it's a picture of the life we have in Christ. So where is Jesus Christ in the book of Joshua? Well, the principle is really in the entire book, right? The principle of the life with Christ is all about he gives the victory and we walk in it. Paul talks about in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, hey, I, I kind of, I planted the seeds of truth. Somebody else watered those seeds of truth and God gave the increase, right? I was responsible, but I didn't make the plants grow. God made them grow. I didn't, I didn't bear fruit in somebody's spiritual life. I sowed the word of God. Somebody else discipled that person. God brought the increase. Jesus Christ brings the increase. And so that's, so all the victory is in Jesus. But we gotta walk in it. Right? That's what Joshua's all about. It's a, it's a great book. I love Joshua. Right? So, all that to say, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which it is uh, so relevant to us, so practical, so uh, just down to earth. We pray that you would uh, help us to really truly learn the principles, to not just hear them, but to apply them. I pray that we would walk in victory that we would be uh, individuals, that we would be a church, that we would be a community of people who are victoriously stepping out and into what you're calling us to. God, I pray that none of us would hold back. I pray that we would remove the sin in our lives by, your, by the power of your spirit, by your grace. I pray that we'd be a holy people walking 
in the victory that you have offered us, in the victory that's fully ours through Jesus Christ. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.